I Googled this and I found it out. So this is what you look for in a judge. Judges should be impartial. But a neutral view of the law is not impartiality. It's incompetence, he says. Judicial impartiality with respect to the parties to a case is also generally desirable. A judge who favors one party gives or, or gives greater weight to that party's claims is not behaving neutrally. So you see what he's basically saying is that a good judge tries to be as impartial as he can. He has some kind of law that he's basing things on, and then he's trying to work that out and be as impartial as he possibly can. So would you say that judges are basically impartial? Yeah. You don't really want them to be impartial if, if you want them to be on your side, right? Um, but it doesn't work that way. Generally, judges are, are not always as impartial as we'd like them to be. And there are cases we could all quote in this room where somebody got a raw deal because the judge didn't support them the way that they should have. They weren't really impartial. They weren't hearing both sides. But that's okay because we've got it figured out in our country. What we do is we have the appellate court system. So there's no way injustice will take place because people just appeal their cases, right? And if it's bad, you can go all the way up to the United States Supreme Court and you've got nine people there that absolutely for certain will make sure that justice prevails. Is that true? No, I mean, there's times they have passed things that are despicable. Now, it, it does allow for a much higher probability of justice, but as long as we have human beings, we fall short, don't we? So what do we do? Well, what if we had a judge who was perfect who could judge all the judges? Do we have one? We do. You know, his, his name is Yahweh, the, the great I am, the first and last, the king of kings, the lord of lords, and the judge of the judges. But here's the problem. If he's going to judge the professional judges, then he ends up judging really any of the judgments that we make. So he ends up judging the judges, and that includes us. We become the judges. Now, this is all interesting, but where does it, I mean, does it even matter? I just thought I'd share it with you because I thought it was kind of interesting stuff. Um, actually, it ties in because we're going to be talking about this whole idea of judging and God being the judge today as we continue our series called uh, The Gospel Truth in Romans. And remember, we started off with the good news. Gospel means good news, which is that God you know, we, we can't get to God. We cannot be righteous or justified. And those are forensic terms. In other words, those are terms from the courtroom. The courtroom would say, you are not worthy to win your case. You failed. But if you throw yourself on the mercy of the judge and you surrender to him by faith, then guess what? You can enter in. He'll guide you in this life and you'll live forever in heaven. That's the good news. But that led us into this first section we're talking about, which is the problem. What's the problem? I mean, that's good news. So what's the problem? Well, here's the problem. Almost nobody follows it. I mean, relatively speaking, it's a very narrow road. The vast majority of people on earth reject the good news. And last week we learned about the people that are basically just saying, we're going to be unrighteous, we're going to be immoral, we'll do whatever we want to do, and they're going away. Well, then this week, we're going to talk about the next group of people who are the moral people. Now, last week, he talked primarily about you know, just everybody, the Gentile, the non-Jew, but it included the Jews. This week, he's going to begin talking more about the Jews, but in principle, it includes everybody. And the basic idea is we look at this and we say, that the people last week, we say, oh, man, like Mitch was 
praying about them in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Those guys were bad. I'm glad I'm not like them. I'm not, I don't have a problem. They're the ones that have a problem. But as we look at today, we'll see that Paul turns it all around. And next thing you know, God's pointing his finger at us and saying, you've got a problem too. When we look at how God judges. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, and as we do that, there's another interesting point, And it's Paul, in the way he speaks here, he changes his writing style. And he does something that he probably did in person when he would speak. He, he does what's called a diatribe. So what he does is he, he has like a set-up person that's an imaginary opponent that he's debating. And he'll go back and forth. And you would probably say this, but this is what I'm going to say. Well, you probably say that, but I would say this. And Paul's going to do that. And when he would speak, probably he would do that, kind of. And so he would bounce back and forth. So he's got everybody thinking, well, well, what would he say here? What would he say there? So this is what Paul's going to talk about. And he's going to bounce this around. And we're going to see how God um, judges the judges. Next week, we'll look at Romans chapter 2, verses 18 through chapter 3, verse 8. So make sure you read that so you're prepared. And this week, let's look at Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. Therefore... You have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. We know that judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law by nature, do what the law requires... They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So God judges the judges. First of all, in verses 1 through 5, God condemns those who judge others. So see, he's talking about this guy. Oh man, let's talk about what you say. If you judge others, you'll be condemned. Well, I'm not, I don't judge others. I'm not, I'm not judgmental. 
right? We don't, we don't judge. Do you believe in murder? Hmm? How many people believe in murder? I'm afraid to raise your hand. <laughs> Nobody believes in murder, right? You just made a judgment, and a very good one. Congratulations. But you made a judgment. You think about that. that. That was a judgment that you just made. If you say, I don't judge, then you've made a judgment that you don't judge. If you said, I'm not judgmental, you've made, if you're judgmental, you've made a judgment. Do you realize it's absolutely impossible to not judge? You, you, can't, you can't do it. It's an inevitability. It's not wrong to judge, but it's wrong to judge if you judge in an improper way. So we go back to murder and we say, well, um, I don't believe in murder. Okay, well, on what basis? Why is murder wrong? Well, because I don't believe in it. Well, who are you? What if I disagree with you? I believe in it. Let's settle the argument. You don't believe in it, and I do. Guess who wins? See, it, it just becomes illogical. Well, you say, well, okay, I've got people around me. I've got a, I'm collaborating with a bunch of people, and we've written a constitution. Okay, I'm a lot better with that. But still, how do you know it's always right? How do we know that with that constitution is the one we should follow? How do we know what the, fall, the bottom line is? See, to me, if you're, if you're going to judge, the best way to judge is with God. I don't believe in murder because God doesn't believe in murder. Now, there's a lot of other reasons I could argue for it, but bottom line is there has to be some moral absolute, and that's the absolute I have, is that God is against it. So you can see how that works, but Paul is actually going further than this. Paul is actually taking it even further, and he's saying, you know, it's not just that you judge others, but when you judge them, the problem is, is that you, you break the very things you judge them for. You know the stuff we were talking about last week? In some way, shape, or form, you do all of that stuff. You say you don't, but you do. First time I recognized this, and it, this always sticks in my mind, I was a kid. I was in junior high. Any junior high kids here? Anybody? Junior high, yeah, okay, I was in junior high. Chandler, you're not in junior high. Put your hand out. Um, <laughs> awful big junior high kid. Um, but when I was in junior high, there were these kids that ran around like a wolf pack. And they were, they were mean kids, and they were kind of ruffians. And if I'm honest, I, was, I wouldn't say it then, but I was a little afraid of these kids. Not one-on-one -on -one so much, but when they ran around as a pack. And I remember walking home from school one day, and they were across the street. And I was just kind of keep my head down, you know, mind my own business. And they were cursing up a storm. I mean, they're swearing and saying, I mean, it was just every F-bomb and everything you could imagine. And I looked up and there was a guy, a man who was working on his roof. You know, he was just a local guy and he was a carpenter guy and he's up on his roof, pretty muscular guy, and he's working on his roof. And he kind of looked over at me and made eye contact and, and he kind of rolled his eyes. And then he turned around to those kids and he said, watch your bleepity bleep mouth. There's kids around here. There's families around here. And, I, and it was just sort of a disconnect. <laughs> and I thought, what just happened there? I still remember that. I thought, what just happened there? Who was more at fault? He reinforced their behavior. And I think if we're honest, more often than not, we're that guy up on the roof. We're telling other people how to do things when we can't live it out ourselves. So we go back to murder, and Jesus says, 
in Matthew 5 that if you're ever really angry at a person, that's like committing murder in your heart. Like if you had the gun in your hand, maybe you'd pull the trigger then. And you say, well, I didn't commit adultery. But Jesus says in Matthew 5, if you've ever lusted for a woman, you did. In your heart, you did. You'd have gone the limit if you had the opportunity. Your heart is bad. And God knows. And so nobody basically gets off the the hook. And and so that's what he just says. From the get-go, we've got some problems. So you're judging others, but you can't escape the judgment of God, which is ultimately pointing to the end times judgment of God, the final judgment. So he he says, okay, but I know what you're going to presume. I know what you say. You say, but God is kind and good. He wouldn't do that to me. Now, where, where do we get that logic from? Today, it comes from really extreme. You know, when we have people that take the extreme grace gospel to the extreme, and they say, oh, you know, do whatever you want. And Paul will address that a little bit later. But that same kind of thinking was in those days. And it came from a book called Wisdom of Solomon. Wisdom of Solomon, uh, it reads this way. But you, our God, are kind and true, and patient in ruling all things in mercy. Here it is. For even if we sin, we are yours. In other words, the Jewish people said, doesn't matter what we do wrong. If we're Jews, we're heading to the right place. And Paul, that's not what he's going to agree with here, though. You know, Paul is going to say, no, that, you, you've missed the point. The point is, is that you are a sinful person, God is a great and gracious God, and you should feel ashamed in his presence, and you should feel overwhelmed with how wonderful and kind he is to you anyway, even though you don't deserve it, and it should cause you to fall on your face before him and give your life to him. But instead, when you persist to try to do things on your own after you've encountered God, you're just storing up his wrath for you, and it's going to go harder on you when you face him in the final judgment. And so... um, yeah, it's an interesting situation, and we see that the tendency in our heart, because we're just like the Jewish people, is to look down on others. The tendency in our heart is to say, well, I know I'm going to heaven because I grew up in church, and my grandma used to pray for me. You know, I'm, I'm good. I've read my Bible. I've prayed. I'm going to make it. But what he's saying is, no, that's not true. And then we tend to look down on others. Maybe because they go to a different church. Or maybe because they're a different nationality. Or they're different from us in some ways. A different background. Different uh, history than we have. Different social economic background. Different team that we root for. You know, I thought it was kind of funny this week. Just to illustrate how silly we can get in, in putting others down to build ourselves up and having our tribal unity type thing. Um, this week, and just yesterday, I read that Max Serzer, who is the, the great pitcher for the Washington Nationals, defeated the St. Louis Cardinals. Now, what's interesting about that is Max Serzer is from St. Louis. But I bet you almost nobody rooted for him. And I'll tell you what, St. Louis Cardinals, they probably didn't have one other guy that was from St. Louis on their team. See how silly we get? And so, we're going to root for St. Louis We're going to root for the Cardinals, even though nobody on our team has ever come from our area. And we're going to root against Max Serzer, even though he grew up and he's local, bred and born. born. Isn't that silly? But we get that way. We just get so competitive, like, 
Our way is the way. Our way is the, you know, our, our group is the group. Our people are the people. We're an Oakdaleian. We're a Californian. We're an American. We're the best. And that's what the Jewish people were doing. We're going to make it because of who we are. And he says, no, that doesn't work that way. He says, you know, even though God loves the Jewish people, God judges without partiality. And that's our next section, verses 6 through 11. So he goes on to say, I'm going to judge you without partiality. And what's really fascinating here is he judges them really based on works. And that makes sense for us when he talks about the Jewish people and when he talks about the moral person. Because the moral person is self-seeking, right? The moral person is trying to do it on their own. And he says, no matter how hard you try to do what's right, you can't do it. You just can't make it, people. So he says, that, that's a problem. And he says, um, there will be tribulation and distress for the Jew first and then also for the Greek. The Greek would mean all those that are non-Christians. Um, and what's interesting about this is it's like what Jesus said. To whom much has been given, much will be expected. You see, God has favored the Jewish people. And he has cared for them. And they got the information that the other people, nations, didn't get. But at that time, and I'm not really for sure it's so true today, I think it was at that time when everything had led up to and pointed to Jesus, they had all the information, and it happened right before their eyes, and they still rejected him. And what he's saying is, you were given more, and I expected more out of you. And so it's going to be more severe for you because you had that information. Some of you were born and raised in Christian homes. Your response to Christ, it's going to be more expected of you. You know, you were given more. You know, there, there's, there's that chance. And so, so God says, you've given that, been given that opportunity. Are you going to respond? We can go with that and we can see that part and say, wow, that, that makes sense. But what doesn't make sense is this first paragraph, these first two verses where he says that by patience and well-doing, there are those that seek for glory and honor and immortality and they'll be granted eternal life. And that doesn't make sense to us, at least it, like to me when you read it at first, especially if you just read it out of context, you say, what's he saying? Because Paul says there's no way to get to heaven except to fall yourself on God's, throw yourself on God's mercy. And later, that's basically the rest of the book's going to be talking about that. So did, did he just have like a lapse of memory? I mean, he's getting old. Paul's getting, you know, up in age. Maybe he just kind of had a lapse. You think so? Um, one person disagrees with that. Um, so, so maybe not. Um, but but what, how else do we explain it? You know, what is going on here? Is it just that Paul says that, well, sometimes, it's, sometimes you can work your way into heaven, but other times you can't? I think we have to put the whole thing into context. You look at what the whole book is saying, and you look at the end of this chapter, and the very end of this chapter says that, you know, it is not by the letter of the law, but by the spirit of the law, by the Holy Spirit, that a person supernaturally enters into God's kingdom. You put that into consideration, and that's really what Paul's talking about here. He's saying that if a person throws themselves on God's mercy, they look to God's glory and honor, you know, they look to God God is the one who will provide immortality for them. 
He is the one who will transform their lives. He is the one who will enable them to live forever. And so that's what we look for. But scholars are quick to remind us that uh, Paul really, one of the things he emphasizes is almost parallel with grace is that once a person comes into a relationship with God by grace through faith, that their lives should change. And that should be evidence that they really have given their life to Christ. Paul is adamant. One day we will stand before God. We will not be, be judged for the works that we did before. Once we've come to know Christ, all is forgiven. But God is saying, what, what have you done since? Have you lived faithfully for me? God will empower us to do what he calls us to do, and then he'll reward us for it. But have we held on to him, and have we been faithful to do all that he's calling us to do? For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And he's talking about what happens after a person comes into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we're reminded that you don't, the, you don't get into heaven by your good works. You can't be just moral enough. You can't be good enough to get in. But once you come into a relationship by coming into a relationship with Jesus, and once you come into a relationship with him, if it's sincere, shouldn't you want to die for the person who died for you? Shouldn't you want to give your whole life for him? Shouldn't you be passionate about your life in Jesus Christ? Shouldn't you want to tell as many people as you can that they could come in too? It just should be natural. Holy Spirit should flow through us. If it's genuine, we should be telling people. We should be encouraging them to come in too, just like people told us one time. And we should be living our lives faithfully for him. But he goes on to the next and the last point, and that is that God judges in light of the law. And, and he starts off and he talks about two types of people. And he talks about the person who is without the law. And he talks about the person who is with the law. Again, I might take it in reverse order here because it makes a little bit more sense when we talk about the person who is with the law. The person who is with the law, he says, if you're with the law, then you need to, to fulfill the law. The law he's talking about is the Mosaic law. You ever read the Mosaic law? I've been reading through Deuteronomy lately, and I've been, actually I've gone through Genesis through Deuteronomy. I've just been spending a lot of time in that area in my personal um, time with the Lord, and I can't even remember the holidays. I can't remember, I can't even get it all straight. It just makes me dizzy. All the stuff that they'd have to do, there's no way they could do it. They'd have to be perfect. It's just overwhelming what they'd have to do. None of us could live up to that law. And I think the point is that the Jewish people couldn't do it. We wouldn't be able to do it either. Nobody could live up to that law. But he goes on to talk about the fact that if you're not under the Mosaic law, you're still under a law of sorts. Because we still, even if we're not under the law, we still fall short. You say, well, it's not fair. I wasn't under that law. I didn't have a law, so why do I get judged? Because... You still knew you weren't supposed to murder, steal, lie, do bad things, right? You knew that. How did you know that? Because it's just part of being human. God put that in your heart. He lets you know what you should and shouldn't do. I know when I yell at my friend and walk away, I feel guilty. Why? Even if I'm not a believer, 
I know that I did the wrong thing. And there's just something inside me that tells me that. And that's what Paul was talking about last week in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, where he said for his invisible attributes, speaking about God, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, people that break these things, are without excuse. We, we don't have any excuse because, you know, we know better, don't we? You know, we have our own code of ethics, but we can't, we can't even live up to what we should be trying to live up to. And it's ironic. He says, you know, sometimes a person will do better. Sometimes you'll meet a person who isn't under their Mosaic law. So Paul's arguing with his make-believe friend. He goes, sometimes you'll meet people that aren't under our law, and yet they live better lives than us, right? You ever met a good Greek person, and he just lives a really good life? Have you ever met somebody who just seems like they've got it all together? It's really hard to pinpoint anything they've done wrong. Ask them their deepest, darkest secrets. They're not going to tell you. They don't have to tell God. He knows. God knows everything you've ever done wrong and everything you've ever thought that's wrong, God has known. That's a a deeply convicting thought. It's It's a thought that really makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? And so he basically says, nobody's, nobody's going to get away with this. Talk about these laws that we have. Try driving home today without once going over or under the speed limit. Without never stopping too long or too short at a stop sign. Without ever crossing a line prematurely. See what I'm saying? It's a good illustration of life. We can't even drive without breaking a law going home today. It's impossible. And that's kind of how life is. Um, You know, each person has their own code of ethics. And I think it usually starts with our family. And our greatest crisis is when we get married and find out that the person we married has their own code of ethics. And we just develop these things. But the bottom line is we can't keep them, whether it's the Mosaic Law or just our own code of ethics, We can't keep them. And so we all are guilty before God. And it's only by God's grace that we can be saved. So I want to look at a couple applications today. You know, and and let me just, as we do, remember chapter 1, verses 16 through 17 again, that it's only as we place our faith in God that we can be saved. We are best to just call on the mercy of the judge and say, you know what? You've judged me correctly. I couldn't keep the law. I tried to do things on my own and I failed. I blamed other people and said it was their fault. I thought I was good enough just because of who I was. I went to church or whatever. And I, I, stand, I stand convicted. I'm, I'm guilty. I fall in your mercy and I just surrender my life to you. Your will be done. Take me, Jesus. I'm yours. And then God says, get up. You're clean. No further sentence. Furthermore, I'm going to adopt you as my own child. And that's the mercy and that's the grace of God. Now, with that in mind, let's look at a few applications. First of all is, who do we judge as lower than ourselves? You know, the people at the beginning, the moral people thought all the immoral people were lower than them. Um, The Jewish people thought the Greeks were lower than them. This whole beginning, that first paragraph is all, 
I'm going to go to heaven because I'm better than him. I'm better than her. That's how I'm going to get in. Who do we think we're better than? I used to always think rich people were bad people, unless they gave me money. Um, But then I went and I worked with some really rich people, and they were really nice. They gave me money. No, but you know, you start running into people, and and you you build relationships with them. You say, well, those people were different than me, but they're nice people. And it kind of throws you. You ever notice, though, how people are like that? I mean... The educated people look down on the uneducated. They say, well, they weren't ambitious enough and they're lazy. And the uneducated people look to the educated people and they say, how could they have so much education and be so stupid (laughs) and lazy? Right? And so we're both at each other as if somebody's right and somebody's wrong. And we can go down and we can do that with almost anything. Um, And I would just encourage you this week to find somebody who you would typically have a tendency to look down on. Identify that. Who is it that you look down on? And reach out to them this week. Pray about them. Reach out to them. It may be the Mexican migrant. It may be the CEO at your company. Pray about them first, and then just say hello. How are you doing? How was your weekend? And begin to build a relationship with that person. Pray for that person and see what God does. Conversation may start up. Invite them to church someday. It doesn't all happen in the first conversation. A lot of it just begins by, how are you doing? And you'd be amazed when you get to know people how it's a lot different than you're making judgments about them from the, from the distance. And then, do our works prove our faith? Um, do our works prove our faith? In other words, does it prove that we truly know Jesus? And the first place to start is, do we know Jesus? We've talked a lot about the gospel in various ways today, but if you have not acknowledged that you can't get to heaven on your own and that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave, and if you have not surrendered your life to him by faith, then you need to do that. That's the greatest thing you could ever do. And we'd encourage you to come and talk with us about that today. In fact, we failed to mention this today, I think, in our announcements. One of the things that I just just now I'm remembering, is that we've had some people that are interested in being baptized. And if you have not been baptized and you would like to be baptized, we're going to do a baptism. And we're just trying to determine when we're going to do that and where. So come and talk to us. Uh, It would be great to give your life to Christ and be baptized. This is a good time to do it. So come and talk to us about that. Now, the other thing, though, is if you have come into a relationship with Jesus Christ... Does your works, do the way, does the way that you live your life show people, they say, I, I wonder, there's something different about that person? I wonder if that's one of the people, those people that, that knows Jesus. I wonder if they're a religious person. You know, something, does something stick out about you? Um, you know, is there something different? I was just thinking last night, I've been reading a good book, uh, the biography, autobiography of uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman, the, the singer, um, and he, they built this house, they built this big hospital in China, and they painted it blue, and they put white clouds on it, and it was this big building, and, and there's a story where this person was trying to find the place, and they didn't know where it was, they didn't have the address, so they talked to the Chinese taxi cab driver, and they said, we're trying to find this place, and it's big, and it's blue, and it has white clouds on it, and he goes, oh, I know where that place is, he says, that's where God lives. Isn't that a great story, because he'd seen that, 
was something different with the people that were at that church. Do people say that about you? That's that house there, those people, they're kind of religious. Really nice people. Something different about them. They don't curse. Man, they'll pick up the paper for me in the morning. They'll say hi. They'll offer things all the time. They're just the friendliest people. They're nice down to earth, but they don't, they don't get into the arguments and fights and yelling at each other as much as the other neighbors around here. They just, they're, they're polite to everybody. They treat each other well. There's something different about those people. That should be how it should be in our lives. Now, the other thing to look for, though, here that's important, and it's one of the things that has bothered me more about myself as years have gone by, is I realize some of the things that I've done that were good things, I've done in the wrong ways. You ever have that happen? I've done it for me. I've done it for praise. I've done it to look good. I've done it to win friends. Instead of doing it because it's what God had told me to do. I don't worry about those other things. I did it because that's what God wants me to do. And because I love him and I want him to be known. And I want to be a good example and witness for him. And because as he flows through me, I just simply love people and I want to care for them. So it's good to check the motives of our hearts. And then finally, how do we judge between right and wrong? Now, we've talked about laws, and it's interesting, at the beginning, we talked about the judge, remember? And it said that the judge could not be neutral to the law. He, he did have to have a law that he based his decisions on. Now, we know that we're saved by grace through faith, but we also need to be clear that we do have guidance, and it's written down. Our law, in a sense, is the Bible. Um, it's not a law in the sense that we have to keep all of it to get into heaven. But it is a guidance. It is a guidebook to help us as we make decisions on what is right and wrong to do in life. Um, you can take different issues and you can plug them in. I don't know if you ever think about that, but, but this is what God wants for us. So we should follow it. We're never going to follow it perfectly. And when we fail, we ask forgiveness. And he's already forgiven us. So we really, in one sense, he's already forgiven you once you come into a relationship with him. But you just want to make sure that you tell him, I'm sorry I did that. I, let's make sure, I want to make sure that we're communicating with each other and I, I just got to get this off my chest and, and move on. But we still need to look to it for guidance. Take, for example, some of the issues. Take, okay, let's take something like premarital sex. Is premarital sex right or wrong? Well, it's been an issue in societies, anthropologists will show us, even non-Christian societies, forever. Partly because, you know, you have a village and everybody's sleeping with each other. You have a lot of people getting upset with each other, and next thing you know, you have problems. So there seems like there's something wrong there. Um, it definitely has been wrong through societies, not just the Bible, through history. But on the other hand, shouldn't I be able to do what I feel like doing? And who does it care? Who, who cares if I get married? I mean, can't we just have fun? I mean, that's kind of the attitude we have today. So how do we decide? Well... We open it up. And it's just full of passages that tell us not to. In fact, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3 says that it must not even be named among you. So it's case closed. You see, so we can know what God tells us to do on most things. You can take most issues and you can go to the Bible and you can read and see what the Bible says. And the Bible isn't always like you can or can't do this, but it'll give you guidelines. But oftentimes it's just like that. Okay, I'm not supposed to do it, so I don't do it. Right? Because that's what it says. Now, we may stumble and we may bumble, and God forgives us. That's His grace. 
You're not going to get into heaven based on how perfect you live because you're all going to fail, fail at some point. But there's that balance that you still are trying to do what's right even though you know and you're looking for God's guidance, even though you know you'll fail and know that he'll forgive you and then you just keep on going. Does that make sense? So you, you do the best you can and, uh, and don't get, don't, shouldn't be feeling guilty about your life. You just do what you should. And if you do something wrong, then you just tell them you're sorry and you move on. You know, one of the most respected justices and prolific writers in the history of the justices in American history was the great Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. And, and he wrote to the famous psychologist William James about the law and he added this insightful statement. He said, the great act of faith is when man decides that he is not God. He's talking about the law here and and making decisions as a judge. The great act of faith is when man decides that he is not God. When we try to pretend as judges that we're God, that's what we do. When we judge others, essentially, the bottom line is we're making ourselves God. And the great act of faith is realizing that we're not God, he is. That's the starting point. We place too much faith in ourselves and our judgment, and it's time that we transfer that faith to the supreme judge. We join me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much that you are the judge, and you are an impartial, just judge, and we can always count on your judgments. Help us not to get in the way and judge others um, in that way, but pray that we would still hold to the truths of Scripture, and make judgments about what is right and wrong based on what the Bible says. And pray that we take stands on it, even when we're not popular, and that we would seek to fulfill it, but at the same time know that you forgive us when we fail. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here that doesn't yet know the grace, the peace, and the joy of being in a relationship with you, that they would come to know you today. I pray that the rest of us would be encouraged to draw deeper in our relationship with you and more bold in our profession of you and in the proclamation of our life through our words and our deeds. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.